You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. I'm Greg Wilson, and I'm here with my co-host, Rob Nahoopi. Hey, Rob. How's it going? Greg, it's going well. How about yourself? Things are things are good. No shortage of content for us to <laughs> chat about during the podcast. That is absolutely true. Uh, I keep thinking maybe, maybe in one two-week cycle, there won't be as much news, whether good – well, good news are always – happy about um you know more negative news uh less so and it seems to be just more negative news um i, I guess we do try and we are going to try and add at least one good positive thing today on our update so there's that yeah my my, my old organization we, we had started meetings with a win so it, it's been a little difficult to kind of identify the wins here in the 340b space the last couple of months or years i don't know but uh, yeah i mean lots you know lots of great work out there I, I just love going and meeting clients when i'm on audits and just really impressed with how covered entities have been um just so kind of flexible and adaptable to the, the 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 craziness that's out there so keep your head up everyone absolutely yeah so should we start off with our our, our we're gonna call it positive because it's the most positive thing we have on our list today should we should we start with that yeah, well, before we get into the positive, let's just make sure everyone's kind of on the same page with FAQ 4301. So um, I know that was the hot topic uh, the last couple of weeks uh, with the change or the expiration of the PHE. There's been some change in terms of what HRSA has posted regarding FAQ 4301. That was the FAQ published in June of 2020 that kind of outlined new provisions around child site timing eligibility. Um, no changes since we last uh, recorded a podcast episode back on on May 12th. It's now May 18th. Um, if you want to catch up on the current state of kind of our take on what's going on with 4301, we recorded and posted a bonus episode. So check out the bonus episode where we kind of get into where HRSA and Apexis are in terms of providing communication to covered entities around 4301. You know, I just thought of one thing, though, Greg. Um, yeah. Totally nothing we've talked about previously. What's interesting about FAQ 4301, you're right, no real big changes. Um, I will say 340B report did report on a conversation that Bill Von Olsen had with, with a senior policy advisor at Pexis. She's now left, but but at the time, and it's very reminiscent of the Morford letter where Bill Von Olsen has a conversation with, with um, a de Deputy Administrator Morford at, at uh, HRSA at the time. And so it, interesting link between that and, and our main topic today, which I know we're going to introduce later, but I just thought of that off, you know, just, I guess, unscriptedly um, thought of yeah. that connection there. So I No, that's, that yeah, that's a gr great, just, I think that just even muddies the water further in terms of, you know, the, the, I don't want to say the legality, but the process by which HRSA kind of makes these policy changes. I think it makes it very, very difficult for covered entities when you don't have a lot of black and white guidance out there. So, you know, right. certainly uh, I suspect we'll hear uh, more, you know, especially when we see how HRSA might be enforcing their interpretation of child site eligibility during HRSA audits in the future. It'll be curious to see if anybody uh, links back to some of that back channel communication that's been provided by Apexis to other vendors and covered entities around that, that whole 4301 being a permanent policy interpretation. Right. And I guess I guess we should clarify for anyone listening who doesn't receive the 340B report. 
I mean, we had Ted on last time, so we talked about it. Um, there is a paywall, but you do usually get the, um, the I guess, the, a clip of the articles. And that one, I think you'd actually be able to see it with, without yeah. actually subscribing. But but in there, really, it talks about with Bill Von Olsen asking um, Apexis about FAQ 4301 or this situation with um, being able to – hospitals to be able to use uh, new locations, not yet on a file cost report, but will be on a file cost report as a qualified – location on a qualified line with expenses and charges and all of that. But his basic question is, you know, does this end with COVID? And the answer from Apexis was, no, it doesn't. This is supposed to continue on. So it's just basically, I think, 340B report helping covered entities. Here's here's actual wording that came from Apexis in 2020, which should have really came from HRSA, right? That's the way Apexis works. So I yeah. thought it was interesting to post that because, again, very reminiscent of the Morford letter to me, yeah. um, using, I guess, just conversations as a mechanism to show you know, here was the intent or the interpretation of HRSA uh, vicariously through Apexis at the time. Um, and so again, just showing that there was a change that occurred, it was a significant change. And here's some documentation that that there in fact was a different stance just a few years ago. Yeah, well, essentially widens the pathway for covered entities to maybe pursue, you know, continuing practice as is, treating those new eligible departments as eligible and, and uh, then catching them up on OPACE once the cost report's filed. Uh, again, yeah. bonus episode kind of gets into the the nuts and bolts of you know what what we think you need to look at if you're going to continue that. So yep, yep. I guess we we can stop rehashing that one for sure. But yeah, listen to the episode. Let us know if you have any questions. All right, next good news. So with the PHE expired, but one thing that's still in play right now are the 340B protections associated with the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2022. So this is the, the provision that allows HRSA to reinstate covered entities who file a cost report with a disproportionate share percentage below their eligibility threshold for their covered entity type, as long as their cost report ends, cost reporting period ends no later than December 31st. 2022. So that protection is still available to covered entities, right, Rob? Absolutely. In fact, so the reason that's so pertinent for why we're bringing it in the, the month of May, uh, for those familiar with Medicare cost reports for hospitals, uh, so in, usually when your cost report period ends at the end of December or calendar year, then your cost report is due to CMS by the end of May. And so right in the middle of it, in fact, we had a great conversation with one of our clients yesterday who's had a dish hospital to fall under and, you know, they're, they're asking some questions about it. And we are able to kind of share the information about the Consolidated Appropriations Act and the ability for them to submit the attestation um, and, and keep their 340B status for another year. Now, what's important here is this is, this is it, right? So that, that act ended at the end of, well, the ability for, to use the attestation to stay in your current 340B status um, or covered entity type ended at December. So this is the last one, but for all of you who do have who are reporting this month on your cost report and you are going to drop, just remember you can use it. This is your last time. Um, and then you probably want to make, um, you know, determine by the end of the year of this year, if you're going to fall under that threshold again, to consider if you do qualify as another status, right? A lot of dish hospitals sometimes have a sole community hospital status or rural referral center status. So if you qualify for those two or can qualify for those two um, type of hospital uh, types, definitely make sure that you have plans to transition to that. Um, we recommend communicating with Apexis to see, you know, what those timeframes look like to make sure that you can do that in a way that doesn't cause you to lose any 340B eligibility. So, so just a quick update. That's our positive, right? So I guess that's positive for those those hospitals that have dipped under their dish percentage. But just wanted to start with those two things as, as I guess, are, are sort of positive things before we get into what we'd say is a more, more um, negative 340B stance for these other topics we have. Yeah. 
Yeah. So moving on um, in terms of congressional up. Well, I guess going back to the Consolidated Appropriations Act, I think it's just important for folks to understand that the, that the 340B protections from consolidated appropriations is is separate from the PHE. So some folks out there in our yeah. discussions have conflated the fact that those protections go away now that the PHE is expired. That, that's not the case. As long as your cost report um, is filed with a, a cost reporting period no later than December 31st, 2022, even though the PHE is not in a in effect today, you can still submit the attestation pursuant to the provisions from uh, that CAA law from last year to retain your, your eligibility. So don't discount the opportunity to do that just because the PHE has gone away. So, all right, let's talk about congressional updates. So yesterday, the health subcommittee out of the Energy and Commerce Committee did a markup session on a number of bills related to healthcare pricing in transparency. And a number of bills are going to be passed on from the subcommittee to the full committee for uh, a future vote. So first, H.R. 3290, that's Representative Bouchon's bill that would introduce annual reporting requirements for uh, a number of data elements related to 340B savings. We, we knew that there would be support we thought there'd be bipartisan support for um, you know, increasing transparency around the 340B program, but this particular bill has a lot of onerous reporting requirements um, along with it. And you saw party line voting for this particular uh, legislation, right? Yeah, that, that's what was reported um, from the House was that it was party line 16 to 12. So that's, uh, and remember the House is currently GOP led, so that's the GOP um, representatives voted for it. The the Democratic ones did not. Now, one thing that's interesting though, that's the House, right? So this bill has to still go over to the Senate um, in its current form. Um, the Democrats on the committee, the reason they voted against it did say, look, this there's a this is pretty onerous. Like what we're asking isn't a light uh, load for many hospitals and, and they're sort of reluctant to add this much more workload to hospitals who are already short staffed. So I think we get that. We see it when we're at hospitals and as we talk to our clients. So I think that's a legitimate concern, um, especially for the amount of details being asked for. You know, I guess the question I have is, especially as it goes over to the Senate, which is um, still democratically controlled, democratically controlled, you know, do they kill it? Does it just get modified? So I think lots more to come on this one, but uh, yeah. but it is getting it because it did pass the subcommittee on health. It will now go to the full energy and commerce committee and work its way up through the House. Um, and then of course, as just a reminder for even after, if, if, if and when it passes the House, it still has to get passed by the Senate. So not a done deal, but um, it's got traction, I guess is the key there. Yeah, it's, I, I caught the end of the subcommittee meeting yesterday. I was streaming it on online and there was some co conversation around contract pharmacies. You know, some of the, the Democratic legislators that were you know addressing the bill said, look, we need to also address contract pharmacies because covered entities are, are really suffering from manufacturer policies. And you know the the sentiments that uh, Representative Bouchon shared was that contract pharmacy is going to be resolved by the court. So no no discussion on adding any element of contract pharmacy provisions into this particular bill. Which which is unfortunate, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, it feels like we always talked about it. If 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 hospitals you know, are going to have transparency added, which which we're not saying it's a bad thing, but but it is going to require effort and, and how it's done, it, it actually matters, right? The, the, yeah. the details matter here. But to, to get that without, you know, something in return like contract pharmacy or something else that's critical for hospitals right now, I think that's that's that that's unfortunate. Um, yeah. And I disagree with Bouchon that's going to be, or I think he says that the contract pharmacy matter should first be addressed by the courts. It's like, 
well, it's already being partially addressed by the courts. If we wait for that, we're going to have, you know, I don't know how much longer. We don't know how long the courts are going to take. Um, that's even if we have a split decision amongst the appellate courts, then it yeah. still has to somehow get seen by SCOTUS if, to really get a decision. And we're already on the bad side of it because the first court, the, the third district court, I think uh, Philadelphia already sided with the manufacturer. So it's already it's already in a bad spot. Um, and so to wait, I think would be, a, at least from my perspective, not the right way to go. I mean, they can, I get his point, you know, why don't we just wait for the courts to finish this up, but, but it's heading in the wrong direction already. And so if it's already heading in the wrong direction, affecting covered entities and savings and therefore patient care, why not address yeah. it now? Yeah, why kick the it. why kick the can down the road? Yeah, yeah. but uh, you know, I guess not surprising. You know, the Republican lawmakers right. are not going to advocate for you know uh, you know adding any contract pharmacy uh, provisions into uh, in, into these the, these bills for the most part. Um, you know, another thing that's missing from the discussion around transparency is uh, manufacturer transparency around 340B sales. We're, we're constantly talking about covered entities sharing their 340B savings, what they do with their 340B savings, how they pass the discounts on. But not a lot of discussion around, you know, adding requirements for manufacturers to clarify what their 340B sales uh, sales look like. So curious if that gets added in, uh, you know, a future revision of the bill. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so definitely one to watch. And just a reminder, that's H.R. 3290. Um, when you go to Congress's website, that so has officially been introduced to the House as a 515. Um, and so it's 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 en route. It's making its way. You know, another uh, piece of legislation that's passed on to the ENC committee, uh, this is H.R. 3281. I think this was sponsored by Congresswoman McMorris Rogers, a Republican out of Washington. This is a bill aimed at promoting hospital and insurer price transparency, but has some some direct 340B implications. But brutal. So, you know, we, we focus on the transparency one, you know, and, and the other one we're following, which which uh, my understanding, was, it was introduced in April. So. Um, not a lot of discussion was Protect 340B Act, which has the P PBM dis anti-discrimination and a clearinghouse um, opportunity. So I know that one's still going through. Again, not a lot of recent discussion on this. The, this next bill is probably more critical. But this one by um, Representative uh, McMorris Rogers is actually, if, if for people to pay attention to, I think actually more potentially impactful. Yep. So in this bill, um, you know, so you know for how most states right now, for if you're fee for service Medicaid, almost most, I'm gonna think just about every state has uh, some AAC language or at least reimbursement where they're gonna reduce your reimbursement because it was 340B, and that's you know that's because of some previous um, I think uh, language and previous um, legislation, but HR three two eight one actually wants to do that for managed Medicaid as well. So if you think about you know right now like what's going on in California and now going on in New York where you have mm -hmm. On the retail side, all of the retail prescriptions are now running through fee-for-service, I believe primarily so that they can pick up AAC on everything. And where managed Medicaid is kind of the question mark is based on contract negotiation. It's all these things. Well, this particular bill will actually make it so that all managed Medicaid um, has to require ingredient costs plus a dispensing fee. That would be talking about retail drug side. Um, not exactly sure if this will impact hospital-administered drugs, but it could. I probably yeah. have to read the more details. Um, I didn't get to see all the language on this one yet when I looked online, so I'm still waiting for the full language to read. But um, but this one could be even more catastrophic, uh, pretty catastrophic financially. It pretty much means all managed Medicaid at this point, especially on the retail contract pharmacy side, it'd look like fee-for-service Medicaid, and there would be no really savings opportunity because the, the pharmacy itself would only pick up a dispensing fee. So for all those in-house retailers that have the ability to process with a, some type of modifier, if that's the requirement or whatever the requirement is for their state, they're going to lose that opportunity. So that, that I think could be a big, big deal. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, again, probably doesn't get the same headlines in 340B news articles, although 340B reported report on it. But, you know, it's the, the, the 340B issue of this um, price transparency bill really kind of could slide in under the radar for, for a lot of folks. You want to pay attention to this one as well. And you know, maybe now is the time to look at what the uh, financial impact would be if you're carving in uh, managed care Medicaid within your retail uh, universes and, and understanding what the, the the loss of revenue might look like if you were to take a, a reduced reimbursement. Yeah, and, and there's a second component 340B report shared on this one, which I think is interesting because it's really about child, you know, child sites where there's a, another provision in this particular bill that, and, and by the way, the, the, bill, the bill name for this one is to promote hospital and ensure price transparency. So you can kind of see where they're going. So there is this other component about um, Medicare payments for items furnished in hospital outpatient departments where they're trying to make that similar or more aligned to the same payments that are pr- paid to private physician offices. Yeah. So, so again, you know, that's that's kind of one of the knocks about when hospitals add more child sites or more hospital outpatient departments, there's this slightly different um, reimbursement methodology, especially when you're on site. There's always there's offsite neutrality already. So that's kind of gone. But this this looks like this might be trying to tackle even the ones that are on site and just making sure those payments are similar if it's a similar type service. Again, probably need to read the details, but I think that's I mean, at the onset, the hospitals might lose a little revenue there. But I think that helps from a copay, especially a percentage copay when you have hospital outpatient departments. So so not all negative on that front, um, but prob- we need to see the details to be able to assess that further. Yeah. So those go to the ENC committee, which in, I think could meet and vote on these as early as next week. And then they would have to you know, progress through the both, both chamber, chambers of the House or both chambers of Congress before they pass on to um, the White House uh, in the future. So a little bit of an uphill climb, I think, for, for all of the legislation that was voted on, but something to pay attention to. Let, let's talk about contract pharmacy restrictions. So we've got a couple of manufacturers who've tightened up their policies. Merck and Sanofi are implementing new policies or revised policies effective uh, the 1st of June. Again, it's similar to what we've seen with some of the other manufacturers since that uh, initial uh, federal court ruling back in January, Rob. Tell us a little bit about what Sanofi and Merck are going to be doing now. Yeah, both very similar, interestingly enough. Same dates, like you mentioned, June 1st um, is when the transition will take place. The only difference I see between the two are um, Sanofi is impacting community health centers, or they say consolidated health centers, um, and Merck is not. Merck is saying, well, for grantees or consolidated health centers, they're just keeping, or sorry, I've got that reversed. Um, yeah. It's going to be the same as before. So Merck's impacting uh, consolidated health centers and Sanofi's not. Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah, CHC, the Merck policy now removes the exemption for CHC. So Sanofi's not not doing that. But but yeah, after January 1, consolidated health centers are going to be subject to the same restrictions as hospitals. Yeah, sorry. Got that backwards for everyone listening. So Merck (laughs) is the one (laughs) that uh, is going to impact consolidated health centers. So that's, that's a big change. Um, that's important, but otherwise the rest of it's very similar to what we've seen previously with, with one slight exception, right? The very beginning, we, we saw some things around, um, the ability to uh, send data. If you had an in-house retail pharmacy and you wanted to do a contract pharmacy, one contract pharmacy, you could, if you sent data on both your in-house and your contract, both Sanofi and Merck aren't having you send data. So they both do have, um, they're both basically saying no more, um, health system owned exceptions. So even if your health system owns a pharmacy, it's going to be treated just like a contract pharmacy. And if you have an in-house retail pharmacy, you don't get to have a contract pharmacy. Just end yep. of story for yep. neither Merck or Sanofi, right? 
And then if you don't have an in-house retail pharmacy, then you can select one contract pharmacy. That could be your health system-owned pharmacy or some other contract pharmacy. You've got to pick one. Yep. And you don't have to send data. So they're not saying you have to send data, which is which is good, right? We saw that from a couple other manufacturers where you could pick one contract pharmacy, but you had to send data. So so both are following that format and the 40-mile rule. They both have the 40-mile rule in there. So No, no. So Merck, Merck has the geograph, the 40-mile geographic oh, limit. Right. Sanofi doesn't. So you can okay. you can select your your designated contract pharmacy regardless of uh, proximity to the covered entity for Sanofi. So Excellent. That's I mean, it's it's so here, hard right? to keep track of. <laughs> There's so many <laughs> subtle nuances and differences amongst the policy. So that's right. You're right. You're right. No 40 mile yeah. rule for for Sanofi, just for Merck. Okay, I yeah. I butchered that pretty good. Everybody listening, so just listen to Greg on this one. He's got it right. And again, we we you know R- Riley from our team. You know, he's our in house expert on this uh, th- this whole 340 ESP thing. Does a great job of keeping track of all of our. Uh, our interpretations of the policies. So um, don't don't hesitate to reach out to uh, Spendman folks that you're working with to to get more clarification on on these and and all the other uh, policies that are in effect. So I mean this isn't surprising, Rob. I guess we kind of everybody projected that this would be the 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 pattern. You know, more and more manufacturers adding stacking additional requirements into their restrictions. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's it's unfortunate because uh, a lot of people were utilizing ESPN. So another couple of manufacturers where ESP now becomes, you know, irrelevant, and yeah. uh, the opportunity to add savings back keeps getting decreased. And there's still some savings there. There's still some manufacturers allowing the ESP data send, and of course, there's there's the couple that even for your single contract pharmacy, you have to still send data. So still a need for it to to be able to utilize ESP to maximize your savings, but that. That dealt that gap of how much savings is available to go and recoup is decreasing. Uh, so unfortunately, you know what we haven't seen is another manufacturer. We're still stuck at 21, which I find interesting. We're um, running out of manufacturers. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Are there more? <laughs> Definitely, not, right? You, yeah, the bigger ones have, have kind of yeah. gone. The big ones, you yeah. know, most of the big the, the big ones in terms of overall. Uh, you know, market share, you know, I think are included now or have some some policies. But you're right. We have not seen any other manufacturers um, really kind of, yeah, you know, add. I'm not yeah. saying you should have more, by the way. So if you have any manufacturers, not saying you should jump in. Uh, just It's just curious that, you know, we're just seeing the same manufacturers just further restricting it and not seeing anyone else jump in. Now that I say that, this is going to drop, what, next Monday, and, and then we're going to have, like, another one or two manufacturers. And then yeah, another, it's my fault. Another, so, another bonus for- episode, right? <laughs> Yes, yes. All right. Well, I think that's up for that. That's it for our uh, updates and, and news, good news and bad news. Um, let's talk a little bit about the focus of today's episode. A uh, little bit of a history lesson that you're going to provide for everyone today, Rob, the Morford letter. Yeah. You know, I always, for some reason, the Morford letter always just was interesting to me. I was always fascinated by it mostly because it's just this random letter out there, right? And and we're going to talk about it on the episode after the break, so you guys will get all the details on it. But I, I love the fact that it's out there, and, and it provided some context for um, uh, a continuum of care type arguments, even prior to the Genesis Law case and all that happening in 2019, 2020. So our thought was, you know, some people who are newer to the program may not have heard of the Morford letter. And so so we wanted to share kind of what it is. Um, what its contents are, kind of what it means, you know, how, how we've used it in the past and, and you know, how you could potentially use it today. Um, and also, if you don't have a copy of it, um, how to get a copy of it. So we're, we're providing copies of it to anyone who, who wants a copy of it. Um, yeah, so I, I think it'll be exciting for those who want to learn. And 
I, I printed out when I first got my hands on one and I kept it on my desk and I'd read it from time to time just because I thought it was an interesting read. Does that say how nerdy in 340B I am? Yeah. I, doing that? I, I, I've said this numerous times, you know, it's, I'm impressed and also a bit shocked that people are actually interested in listening to us talk about these really, <laughs> you know, in the weeds, nerdy 340B topics, but really important in terms of historical context, right? And as yeah. we talk about and look at how patient definition is going to evolve over the next you know, months to years, you know, it, it, it's interesting to to see that this is not a, a topic that, you know, hasn't been discussed in the past. I mean, the Morford letters from t 2021. So 20 years ago, there was still kind of debate about yeah, patient definition. Yeah, so. 2001. 2001. So, yeah, 20, 2001. Yes. Oh, good. I made all those mistakes earlier on Santa Fe Works. All right. We'll take a little bit of a break. It, we'll post in the show notes how you can access the, the Morford letter. Um, and when we get back, uh, Rob and I will talk about what the Morford letter is and what it means to the 340B community. Awesome. The 340B Unscripted Podcast is brought to you by Spendman Pharmacy. Have you started using a referral capture solution to help maximize 340B program savings? Spendman Pharmacy delivers the industry's leading solution to help you identify existing and new referral capture opportunities. Our team manages and meets all HRSA expectations, so you'll never be at risk. Visit spendmen.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how a referral capture solution can help drive 340B savings for your organization. Hey, Rob, welcome back. Thanks, Greg. Glad to be back. Yeah. So not a not a new topic, old topic, 22 years old now. Uh Morford letter. We had some chatting going on amongst auditors at the Spendman team. We were talking about patient definition and how you uh, define eligibility and how far back a qualifying visit kind of counts for a patient being under the responsibility of care of the covered entity. And, and one of the references that came up was the Morford letter. And I know I've heard you talk about the Morford letter um, in the context of patient definition and understanding uh, patient eligibility in the 340B program. And I thought this is a great topic for us to, to really discuss because um, it does get referenced here and there. So let's start with the history lesson. What is the Morford letter? <laughs> Well, I like to think of it almost as 340B urban legend, like lore, um, but but one that really exists. So unlike, you know, the Bigfoot or Sasquatch or whatever, uh, it, it does exist. So, uh, and a lot of people who've been in the program for a long time are familiar what to the letter or the document that we refer to affectionately as the Morford letter. I, I, I can tell you years and years ago when, when I started the program and it did come up in some random discussion, I was like, what is that? What is the Morford letter? Um, and so, you know, I was able to get a copy of it years and years ago, um, and uh, we have a copy today. And, and we'll let everybody know. We'll make sure everyone who doesn't already have a copy of it, um, how you can get a copy uh, from us. Uh, so you too can have a copy of the, the famous or infamous uh, Morford letter. Um, but, but probably better, it's probably good to, exactly to answer your question, um, is it's really a conversation between um, Bill Von Olsen. So, and for, for those who are newer to the program, Bill Von Olsen is, is an attorney um, uh, with a law firm um, out of DC that did, does a lot of work in the 340B space. But, but just in case you didn't know, Bill Von Olsen was actually real a big integral part of um, 340B Health um, or its predecessor, um, SNAPA. SNAPA is what we yeah. call it, right? Um, 
some people uh, different different ways you can say that acronym. Um, but he he and of course um, Ted Slavsky were the two key drivers of Snap or what became Three Four to Be Health and. And it, during that time, and, in, and it's, sometimes he did it through his law firm, sometimes it was through Snap. And in this case, it was, I believe it was as part of his law firm representing a client, had a great conversation through almost dialogue through, and I'm not sure how the actual dialogue occurred, but it was all memorialized in a letter. Um, and that's the letter that we can provide. So anyone who doesn't have access, we can provide it. And in that conversation, he's having a conversation with HRSA and specifically with the deputy administrator of HRSA, Thomas Morford. So therefore that's that's where Morford, the, Mor the Morford letter comes from is it's the Thomas Morford's last name. Um, on there also has some other key people from HRSA, Jimmy Mitchell's on there, James um, Corrigan, David Benor. And so all these people are, um, are kind of on this letter, but it's really a conversation formally between um, Deputy Direct Administrator Thomas Morford and Bill Von Olsen. And, and what Bill's asking in this letter is, and, and the letter kind of stems from, well, it says it's from his letter from November 22nd, 2000. That's how the letter opens up, at least the documentation, where Bill Von Olsen's really asking questions regarding what we affectionately refer to today as continuum of care, right? But back then, that's not what it was called. He's just asking questions about two Federal Register notices, one being the 1996 patient definition, and then one being 1994 criteria for offsite hospital clinics. And his question really stems around the fact that, okay, we get that the criteria for offsite child clinics is really based on the cost report. Um, but for the patient definition, he's asking a question really around continuum of care um, and gave an example of a diabetes patient um, and where the diabetes patient um, was seen at, or a patient was seen at the hospital in a qualified location for a diabetes condition and then later went to a non-qualified clinic for follow-up care. And his question is, should should that not qualify since it's part of that same kind of continuum of care? And, and the, the letter kind of goes on about this conversation where um, Deputy Administrator Morford kind of responds, well, you know, about his perspective and then finally gives some concessions on where it might be possible to consider that uh, prescription written from the non-qualified clinic uh, being eligible, but gives very specific criteria on, on maybe when or how that should occur. And so, of course, that's what we call as a Morford letter. And of course, it, you know, for the most part, it was there um, for years, just to be upfront. If, if we are in a HRSA audit and um, a covered entity happened to have a, a prescription meet the conditions in the Morford letter, but maybe it was didn't originate from the qualified location. Of course, this is pre-2020. Um, we would actually use a letter as a defense um, during a HRSA audit. And quite often, because of the fact that it was there, if it met all the criteria, um, HRSA would at least, um, you know, al allow us to use that uh, documentation of that continuum of care to qualify that prescription, not receive a finding for a diversion. So so we used it off and on for, throughout the years, but they, it, they became very specific about how it was used. And I just think it's interesting because now it kind of comes back with this, you know, Genesis law case and, and the very similar arguments being made um, as Genesis is making around qualified prescriptions. And of course, there's one component that we're going to get to, so I won't jump the gun on it. And, and everyone always asks, well, if we're doing continuum of care, how long after, say, a uh, acute care visit or an ambulatory care visit, can we qualify prescriptions? Yeah. And there's and Hearst has never really published anything. The only thing ever published was that I'm aware of is in the Morford letter. So we'll, well, I'm sure we'll get to that in our yeah. discussion today. Well, yeah, I think, you know, there's like a couple of different kind of elements of 340B eligibility that are kind of talked about in the letter or kind of notated in the letter. Once Qualified of lo qualified location, so you know whether or not a patient has to have a prescription written out of a 
department that rolls up as an outpatient reimbursable clinic on your Medicare cost report to constitute 340B eligibility. The other issue is what we're what you said, Rob, what we're talking about now today is continuum of care. There is an index uh, or a nexus of care that is established at the covered entity. To what degree does follow-up care that occurs at outlying non-registered or ineligible departments following that hospital visit qualify? And then how does this really intersect with referral? Because I've looked at some different, you know, information that's been Posted out on the web, talking about the you know referral capture strategy, and oftentimes the Morford letters kind of referenced in the discussion around referral claim capture. So maybe let's start with qualified location in the context of current covered entity strategies around patient eligibility. What can we take from the Morford letter that helps us understand what HRSA expects us to do as far as qualified locations? Yeah. Um, so specifically regarding referral or continuum of care. Maybe it's really related to some of the discussion around 190 clinics. So you've got a non-registerable department that rolls up on the hospital's Medicare cost report on worksheet A below line 190. There, there's really nothing in the letter that really addresses that particular aspect of the recent patient definition debate, correct? Correct, correct. Yeah, so because the, the letter's focusing more on the the covered entity patient definition. Yeah. And so Bill wasn't arguing for the 190 clinics. Um, he definitely could have, right? That, that um, there, there is some questions about uh, the cost report and that, you know, that being used as a criteria for offsite outpatient facilities. And so there's, there's definitely some, th some things in there. But yeah, I, when I read it, I don't get that um, they're going after 190 clinics per se in here. Yeah. Um, more so looking at does the patient really have to be, if the patient's seen at a qualified location, do they really have to have the prescription originating from a non-qualified location? And that's where definition? continuum of care comes into play because a patient seen at a non-qualifying location after a prior encounter, as long as there's correlation between the prescription that's written from that ineligible department and the hospital visit, this argument here that is essentially being validated by Morford is that, yes, in some scenarios, HRSA would look at that and recognize that as a true scenario where a patient could be qualified as eligible, right? Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, and the, the way the letter kind of lays out, they do get into some specifics. Like, so when we actually tried to use, when we did use the Morford letter to defend some prescriptions historically, right, things have changed since 2020 or 2019. Um, but historically, when we used it, there were some specific criteria. And just a share, and, and some of it's in the way that um, HRSA responds in the letter or the way that um, Bill presents the case. And one of those things were that it was an in-house retail pharmacy. So yeah. we actually used it at first and actually used it more broadly, including contract pharmacy. And then at some point, HRSA did, you know, as they reviewed the letter, came back and said, well, if you read the letter, it's specific to in-house retail pharmacy, only not contract pharmacy. Now, to be fair, or... I think that's a little unfair because back then we're, we're talking about 2001 when this the Morford letter actually came out, but it was conversations occurring prior to that in 2000 and before. We didn't have a lot of contract pharmacy, right? Back then, if you remember, contract pharmacy expanded after that. Yeah, and I mean, so, the, the Morford letter predates contract pharmacy guidance from 2010. So although the Morford letter really is only referencing in-house entity-owned retail pharmacy, it's it it wouldn't be plausible that they would address contract pharmacy in the letter because HRSA had not established any guidance around the use of external pharmacies at that point. 
Right. I mean, there there was there was were some people using a contract pharmacy arrangement, but be, to your point, before 2010, it was if you didn't have an in-house retail pharmacy, then you could set up a contract pharmacy agreement with a contract pharmacy. But but prior to 2010, there weren't vendors really like we have today that were doing that qualification and managing the process because because a contract pharmacy was just very uncommon. Most people had an in-house retail pharmacy. It's yeah. just when they didn't, they they would select a you know the closest pharmacy to them, or maybe a contract pharmacy that was serving most of their patients, and they would select that one, just so they had some form of access, so they can provide you know uh, discounted medications or charity care medications if needed. So they just needed some kind of access, and so it wouldn't have made sense that it would have been part of the discussion because it, you know, in general, almost everyone had an in-house retail pharmacy or or tried to have one, um, and it. I almost think maybe they could have included that, just that it could be either or. But because example was in-house retail. As we were trying to use this to defend prescriptions um, over time, um, HRSA, you know, wisely said, well, if we're going to follow the letter, the letter's for in-house retail only. So it didn't apply to contract pharmacy for, for a period of time before, um, before Genesis gave us a, a little more broad, broader things to think about. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm gonna, we're going to come back to this topic because I'm curious to, to get your opinion on where this sits, I guess, in the hierarchy of different rules and regulations and guidance out there that govern the 340B program. But let, let's go back to this discussion of continuum of care and the, the, um, the scenario that Morford addressed in the letter was around diabetes. But I'll, I'll pose a scenario to you um, and we can talk through it. So I, I go to the hospital um, dish, may say dish covered entity, and I'm seen there in the emergency department, and I get admitted for uh, cardiovascular event. I have a stent placed. Uh, they give me a prescription for Plavix at discharge, and then I'm seen by my uh, private cardiology physician office practice a month later in follow up, and that physician writes a refill prescription for that Plavix from his or her physician office practice. By virtue of me having that encounter at the hospital a month prior under this continuum of care argument, we think there's a reasonable argument to say that's an eligible prescription, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. How long can I continue to go back to my cardiology office for follow-up after that hospital visit without another hospital encounter um, and continue to claim eligibility for that patient? What, what are the different intervals, I guess, that are discussed out there? So, so if, if just out there, so we'll get to what the Morford letter says, but yeah. out there, you know, a lot of people say, oh, we do 12 months. Um, and some people will go more conservative for acute care situations, right? So for ambulatory, a lot of people do 12 months. Now we, just for the, everyone out there listening, for ambulatory care, so this is longitudinal care coming out of a clinic where the, the patient's an ambulatory care patient, like primary care or specialty, we do think you can probably go past 12 months. Um, and that's because not everyone gets seen every 12 months. Um, I always bring up myself as an example, so I don't violating HIPAA violations, but I'm a bad patient. I, I, I'm not on any medications um, uh, or, or chronic medications. And so I get seen every two to three years. And at my age, I probably should be going back every year at this point. I, I just feel like, oh, I'm healthy enough. I don't go. But even if I were on chronic meds or if I needed a hypertension medication, I'd probably go back every couple of years um, just because I'm busy, right? Just got lots going on. I might miss some time or I might even though I'm at a year, I might wait a few months and or I just can't get in. So you're 15 months in or 18 months in before you finally get seen. So I always I always feel that if you're talking about ambulatory care, you can go a little longer than 12 months because otherwise you're saying, gosh, if you don't actually have a visit in 12 months, they're no longer your patient. And I don't think that's true. I think they're your patient. They're just not compliant with coming in on a 12-month cadence. So sure. that's that's ambulatory care. 
Acute care, uh, you know, I, I like to recommend not going more than 12 months if you're going to do it. I know some people go a little longer. Some people go shorter. Some people say, well, if it's acute care, maybe we only do six months. But that's, I think, as an organization, you have to pick what you feel is okay. But to answer your question, and we talked about at the beginning, there really isn't anything that we're aware of where HRSA says, oh, it's got to be in this time frame. Yeah. Um, and so they really leave it up to you to figure out, well, what's your definition? How, how do you define as your patient? And so I'll just read um, this particular component. So I don't want to overread this, um, but it says if, and this is at the tail end of a description talking about the, the whole diabetic um, piece. Um, in fact, I'll just read this. I think it'll be helpful. It says a patient's subsequent non-cost report care should bear a proximate relationship to the initial CE hospital care with respect to both type and time of care. So right, they're saying if it's if it's cardiovascular, like you're saying, they should be somewhat cardiovascular related, or if it's diabetes related, then it should be diabetes related. Now, arguably, diabetes is so broad with its uh, comorbidities, you could probably fit a lot of things into that, but we'll leave that alone. Yep. Um, and it says, assuming all the federal register patient criteria are met, so her, as HRSA always does, they refer back to the um, patient definition, 1996. It says a CE hospital pharmacy on the hospital's Medicare cost report may dispense 340B drugs, for example, to a diabetic who seeks CE hospital emergency room care for a diabetes crisis and then receives a prescription as a result of follow-up diabetes care from a non-cost report clinic. If the same individual returned to the clinic two years later, there it is, with an unrelated complaint, for example, HRSA would view the medical relationship as sufficiently attenuated or ended to not classify the individual as a 340B patient. So based on that, I literally tell people, HRSA's never said anything other than two years is too long. That's yeah. the, this is the only thing I've ever seen. Two years is too long. Um, so th there's my answer. Okay. I don't know what to do with that, <laughs> to be <laughs> honest, <laughs> because I think it's difficult. I think it depends on the clinical scenario, right? If, you know, and again, we're talking acute care. So maybe it's it's more reasonable to have a narrower window of, of time for eligibility in the acute care setting. But I mean, if, if you've got, you know, a, a hospital that's operating, uh, you know, a hospital-based primary care clinic or um, family medicine practice, you, you know, if you've got stable chronic condition where you don't need to be seen in the office, you know, every year, maybe every two years, maybe it's a condition like hyperlipidemia where you get your blood work every two years or every year, um, but and a physician will evaluate medical decision-making off of some laboratory work that you have done, but doesn't need to do a physical assessment on you. You, you may be falling under responsibility of that provider's care, even without an in-office visit. So, you know, I think it's really hard to pick like a single window of time that applies to all the different clinical scenarios that could come across your patient population. Uh, no, absolutely. And and again, I think if you're talking about ambulatory care, right, in fact, what's interesting is why, why this letter is actually different from uh, what Genesis is doing around ambulatory care. Right? They're the primary care provider. So they're, they're providing the ongoing touch points. And maybe they don't get an actual visit, but they're having phone calls for refills. Maybe they're getting labs um, ordered in. Maybe they're taking uh, calls from the patient about their conditions or, or issues they're having. The patient just hasn't made it back in. Yeah. And I still think all those types of that care is all care being provided to the patient. That should count towards, is the patient still currently a patient or not? Because I think we're actually using whether the patient shows up as a visit as a almost like a secondary marker for um, a secondary marker for whether the patient um, is a patient or not. But I think you have to holistically look at what is all the care you're providing uh, to the patient and do you still consider that care a patient? That's in the ambulatory care setting. I think in the acute care setting, we, that's where we have to be more careful 
because the patient, we don't know if the patient's ever coming back into an acute care situation. So we're really relying on that continuum of care. And that's where we do need to figure out what, where are we comfortable saying that, yes, the care we provided, we still maintain some responsibility for care, right? That's part of the 96 patient definition. We still are maintaining maintain some responsibility for care because we saw them for that condition. But how long, how long before that, that responsibility for care kind of ends? And that's where, you know, 12 months or less is typically what I recommend, but you really have to decide for yourself what, what you feel you're comfortable defending um, during a hearse audit. Yeah. I mean, and that's kind of even referenced in the letter. So if you're looking at page four of the Morford letter, I mean, under the program clarification section, second paragraph, they state, you know, the primacy of the patient's medical relationship is apparent in the federal register definition, which focuses on affiliation of the provider with the CE and maintenance of records by the CE. So they are talking about primary care associated with the patient, between the patient and the covered entity here. Yeah, for sure. What about referral? This doesn't really talk about referral arrangements between the covered entity and outside providers. How do you see the context of this letter impacting or kind of overlaid with what we do with referral capture? Anything at all? You know, I only, yes. I mean, not with referral capture itself, right? Referral capture, from my perspective, is is separate. It's actually part of the 1996 patient definition as an example, which is, which is interesting. Um, if you read the patient definition, it, it says, you know, or other arrangements such as referral. And so I think referrals um, even protected or at least allowed outside of the continuum of care argument. Where, where that comes into play, though, as people roll out referral capture, and, and, you know, of course, we offer that service and we're looking for referrals. In that process, you're the typically the primary care provider and you're referring a patient to a specialist because maybe you don't have that specialty expertise or it just makes sense to send them to an expert for a specific condition like rheumatology or oncology or something very specific that maybe the, the primary care provider doesn't feel they have the, the specialty expertise to to conduct. And so when you send a referral, that's that's actually a formal qualified process, you know, even outside of continuum care, it qualifies. Where I think this comes in, though, as people roll out referral capture and they identify that, oh, we're the primary care, we can't find the referral. Um, and maybe you can't find the referral because the patient's been a patient of your ambulatory, ambulatory care clinic for the last 20 years. You've changed EHRs three times and you just don't have access to the original data from 20 years. Plus, you're on paper back then. Um, so you don't have access. Maybe you have access because it's sitting in some storage unit somewhere. Well, my guess is you probably discarded the information 20 years ago, but you know, hypothetically, that's where the referral sits. And so you can't find the referral. So we do think a continuum of care argument like this could make sense because you're like, well, we've been maintaining, we've been the patient's primary care provider for all these years. We believe we likely referred, we just don't have documentation we could prove to HRSA or somebody who asked, but we believe it's there. So then you could use the continuum of care argument or the Genesis law case argument. Yeah. or the genesis argument that they're um, arguing in their law case that the patient's still their patient by virtue of them being the primary care provider. So, but I think being able to have this here just gives covered entities a little bit more, um, uh, you know, acceptability of, of using that argument there. However, we do recommend if you don't have one, but you believe you did have one, you can still create one. There's no reason you couldn't do a coordination of care referral or something um, similar to a referral just to put everyone on notice, including the specialist that, hey, we're the primary care provider. We care for the patient. Please communicate any changes in therapy, right? If really opening up that dialogue, which to me is part of what the patient definition is saying, you're the quarterback of care, you know, and HRSA is really saying, so just prove it to us. And I think by the continuum of care argument helps you in the interim while you're trying to get that uh, actual referral established. In terms of, you know, trying to think in my mind, 
trying to assign a weight of uh, importance of this particular letter. Where does this sit in your mind when you look at different 340B program rules, regulations, guidance, statute? How does a covered entity take a, a document like this and factor it in to their basis for defending how they're operating their 340B program? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I wish it were higher, right? We always talk about their statute and then there's rules. Those are enforceable, right? So yeah. whatever's written the actual statute, which is very, very limited, um, what's actually in statute, that's the highest level. We always have to follow statute. And then there's official rules published in the Federal Register as rules and typically have comment periods and then uh, formally published. Those are also enforceable. And then you have your guidance, which is the next level, which HRSA typically will issue guidance every now and then on a particular subject. And what we've identified recently is guidance is may not be enforceable. It's what we consider sub-regulatory. Then we have Apexis FAQs, which are really HRSA FAQs. They work hand in hand. Um, Apexis being the subcontractor on the on that side. So that's really HRSA FAQs, I think also sub-regulatory, but it gives us a lot of guidance, just like guidance does on, on how HRSA is interpreting the rules. Yeah. I think this is probably one level down from FAQs in that it's just communications, formal communications between HRSA and um, in this case, a law firm um, and so it's almost like a anecdotal evidence of how HRSA responded to a certain case a period of time. Well, now it's 22 years ago. And of course, HRSA could change their stance, which is an issue, um, right? This is what their stance was back in 2001, which may not be their stance today. But at least it's anecdotal evidence of how HRSA has interpreted this issue in the past, which allows a covered entity or a consulting firm or another law firm to utilize that as at least some basis for why they made the decision they did. So I, I think it's really falls somewhere near, probably close or just below an FAQ level. Yeah. Um, I I, I love that 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 reference anecdotal evidence. So looking at yep. you know you know all my days looking at peer reviewed <laughs> evidence. You know this is really one anecdote you know from a while and ago that that gives you some uh, some idea of HRSA's kind of directional you know, approach or interpretation to to patient eligibility. Yeah, we'll call we'll call it an N of one, which we know isn't typically sufficiently powered uh, for statistical analysis, but but does doesn't mean it doesn't have value. Was that a double negative? That's it might another be double negative. Our boy Boer. This, this was a great discussion, Rob. I appreciate you giving us a little bit of a history lesson on the Morford letter. Um, personal question for you. Again, this was a letter drafted in January of 2001. What was Hoopy up to professionally <laughs> back then? Oh my gosh, 01. Um, uh, it was just, so I was finishing up my undergrad. I started pharmacy school in 02, finished in 06. Um, oh, wait, that means I would have started in 01. Um, so th this would be my last semester of undergrad before I got to pharmacy school. I probably was anxiously awaiting acceptance to pharmacy school, um, which I would have received shortly thereafter. Um, would have started that, uh, I think I would have started that August in pharmacy school at the University of Utah. So okay. undergrad, uh, single at the time, wasn't married yet. Um, I think just living my life and and yeah. just hoping to get in, right? To pass my <laughs> Um, you know, just doing young 20 something year old things back then. Um, how about yourself? What were you up to in 2001? Yeah. So in, so in 2001, I guess I would have been in my second year of the six level entry, entry level pharmacy program at Duquesne. So I was in my second year of pharmacy school. So still kind of in like the pre-professional classes. And I think at that time I was, I just started working in uh, community pharmacy. So I, I had always envisioned working in community pharmacy practice when I graduated. So I worked at the retail pharmacy that was in my neighborhood. I lived in a neighborhood, Mount Washington, which is just south of downtown Pittsburgh. 
um, it was like a five minute drive to Duquesne University. So I was I stayed at home through pharmacy school, worked in the community that I grew up in. So had a real strong passion at that point for, for community pharmacy. So yeah, again, I, I was unmarried, um, not yet 21. So hadn't, you know, gotten familiar with the bar scene in, in <laughs> Pittsburgh. So probably playing, playing a lot of basketball, studying and uh, working at the community pharmacy up on Shiloh Street. Yeah, I, that's fantastic. I, I forgot what I was doing working wise, um, just for those out there working hard right now. I, um, since I was before pharmacy school, I was actually doing seven on seven off graveyards during this time period. Probably didn't have much of a life, to be honest, when you're on seven on seven off graveyards and doing college. But at um, within Intermountain Healthcare, putting myself through college and uh, yeah, just, you know, that graveyard shift was brutal at Cottonwood Hospital, which is now closed down. Um, but old Intermountain kind of urban hospital. And I, I was actually started their graveyard shift um, when they decided to go 24 hours with a pharmacy technician at the time. And uh, I actually enjoyed that seven on, seven off. Got to know all the staff in the hospital. We didn't have a tube station. So my job was to run up and down the stairs or elevator, but I like the stairs to stay in shape. Go yeah, deliver all the meds. Was that like cart, cart delivery? And uh, Oh, yeah. I did a cart fill in the morning, IV batch in the middle of the night, did it yeah. all. Picked up the orders, ran them back, filled them. Uh, pharmacist entered them. I filled them, ran them back, and yeah, just I knew all the staff because you're you're on the floor every hour on all. It's only a five five floor hospital, so not too big. Yeah, I, I did my fair share of of night shifts during the early part of my hospital pharmacy career. Man, what what a great like great sense of community, you know, the night, the night crew, you know, I enjoyed it. It's hard, you know, logistically to, you know, work overnight and then try to take care of your affairs during the day or, you know, go to class during the day. But um, I, I do miss the social interaction of working with the night crew. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. That's, that's our call out. If you ever get the opportunity out there um, it's a, it's a fun environment because patients aren't awake. So it's only the staff and, and you get to know the staff because it's a little more low key. Awesome. Well, we'll um, we'll post uh, post up in the show notes uh, a way for you guys to connect with us so that we can share a copy of the Morford letter if you don't have one. Rob, as always, great talking with you. Um, we'll uh, I think we'll catch you the next time. All right. Sounds good. Yeah, no, it's fun talking about the Morford letter. It's always near and dear to my heart, and hopefully, um, you guys now get a better appreciation for uh, what Bill and and that conversation did for us um, for a three forty B community and covered entities. All right. Take care, everyone. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.